I don't know if any of you have been in an interview lately. I still remember my interview about 11 years ago, 11 and a half years ago when I came here. And a very scary vicar asked me this question, which is so burnt into my mind, that I probably asked the same question to a number of people in this room in their interviews too, because it scarred me, and I think you should be scarred as well. And the question goes something like this. So you're in a lift, and there's a number of people in the lift, and the brakes fail. But they're kind of failing in a way in which you know you've got about two minutes before you're going to crash into the ground below. And you have two minutes to explain to those other people in that lift why they should become a Christian. Off you go. Of course, the reality is I'd be screaming and trying to get out of the lift and trying to stop it falling rather than worrying about how I'm going to explain my faith at that moment. I'd be trying to be doing something practical. The trouble is, though, I wonder if many of us feel like that when anyone that we know asks a question about our faith. I was asked a question not long ago by someone quite close to me who said, very simple question, why does a God of love allow so much suffering? And I'm going, quick, I should know this. I've got many books on my bookcases which tell me the answer. Why can't I remember the right answer right at this moment? We, we are scared and worried that we will say the wrong thing. We think this is our one opportunity to get the, the golden buzzer, the right answer so that person may suddenly turn their life around. And of course, we then turn to Scripture. And we read passages like this. For one Peter, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Great, we think. Right, so I need to have my answers ready. Perhaps I need to go along to J. John, and he will give me all the answers that I need to have. He has so many great stories. I, I, I have to, he, is really, he is really great. But then I feel, oh, I wish I had a few more stories like that. But then you also hear, oh, I have to be gentle and respectful so that, you know, it's not just enough to give the right answer. I've also got to have the right tone. And I've also got to understand what's going on in their heads as well. And I've got to have confidence that I actually know what I'm talking about. I wonder, though, if we start in the wrong place because we think that we have to give the right answer rather than reflecting and having trust in who God has created us to be 
and our own experience of Jesus Christ and recognizing that that is enough if we are placed in a situation that there is no such thing as a perfect answer, but rather there's only us and only the experience that Christ has given us to take us to that moment. See, what we've been doing over these last however many weeks, several weeks, is that we've been looking at what it means to live a life shaped by Jesus that impacts those around us. And we've had a number of questions and challenges throughout this series. We started right back with what is our confidence? What is our confidence in Jesus? How he commissions us and how we are filled by his spirit. Confidence, and then it was courage. Courage in mission. That we need to have, or we should be bold, and that our identity comes from Christ, not from what people think about us. And then another C, compassion. No, I've just been uh, reflecting uh, with someone, so I don't know where you've, where you've gone, over there, uh, about the work of Sunnybank Trust at, um, uh, in our partnership with St. Barnabas, caring for those uh, in greatest need. And as I see, connecting actively, how we seek to connect intentionally with the people with our community that God gives us. How we stick to the task, how we continue another C, lots of C's. I'm not going to test you, don't worry, on all the C's. And then last week, how do we bring all those conversations, all the people that we've connected with, how do we uh, enable those people to convert? What does conversion look like? So when we come, as we come to the end of this series, I want to just give us a moment and some time to reflect. I don't want you to feel guilty. Rather, I want us to turn and ask those questions about, okay, I'm feeling challenged, therefore what do I do with this? And and it's great to begin by recognizing that Jesus recognized it was a challenge too. We kind of think that, well, if if Jesus was here, he would be, the church would be full and it would all be great and fantastic. But Jesus told Many stories. And one of those stories you might remember, you might know, was about a farmer. A farmer who sows seed. And you remember in that story how some seed fell on the path and the birds came and ate it. And some seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. 
where it sprang up quickly. And then died in the sun. The thorns. Some seed fell among the thorns and it grew up and then got choked. You know, I recognize so many people whose seed has fallen on the path or on the rocky ground. I can remember the lives of those who I've gone, oh, so fantastic to welcome you into the kingdom of young people whose lives have been changed and you see them just amazingly transformed and then the disappointment as you see them drift away of those who are, are going for it with Christ and then you hear the stories and we have all heard the stories of those often in leadership, who have been choked by thorns that consume them. Let us join the text. If you've got scripture in front of you or on your phone, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears a message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the, of, of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed fallen among the thorns refer to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop. 160 or 30 times what is sown. So the first thing I want to just pull out from this passage is in this passage, in the Matthew uh, retelling of the story, he is wanting us to know that the sower is Christ. It is true in other passages, Luke 10, which talks about um, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are are, are few, that we can think about, okay, we're the ones doing the sowing and we're the ones who need to kind of gather it in. But actually here, what Matthew is wanting to say is the sower is Christ. And that should be, and what Matthew wants to know is that That is so reassuring because it is Jesus' work. I'll come on in a bit to tell you a little bit more how that expands. But it is Jesus' work. It is Christ's church. Jesus builds his church, not us. And that immediately takes the guilt away. It's like, actually, this is not about us. 
This is about what Jesus is doing. He, uh, in, in, in throughout uh, Matthew, Matthew is saying um, uh, some key things about the role of Jesus and how he continues to be active. How he will be the judge. How he will separate the faithful from the unfaithful. It's not that Matthew takes away our own responsibility to produce fruit or to multiply, but he does start off by saying it starts with Jesus. Secondly, we hear in this passage that the line between sowing the word and reaping is not straightforward. And as I illustrated, we all know this. Let us not pretend otherwise or be surprised. We should expect challenge. As we look to our partnership with St. Barnabas, it's not just a straight line of we do some stuff and then lots of people come to face. Actually, it is hard work. Yes, there is good stuff, but alongside that, there is disappointment as well. Secondly, what is the condition of our own soil? See, this is where all of us sitting here today have responsibility. What Matthew, what Jesus is asking is, what is the condition of your soil? Um, I don't know if you are, uh, any of you gardeners here. About two, (laughs) well, that's perhaps not very reassuring. But let me tell you, as I have found this, that if you don't look after your soil, your garden starts growing weeds. If you don't, uh, if you don't uh, uh, put manure on your plants, they look really good for one season, but after two or three seasons, the soil loses its quality. And the, and the, seed, and the plants start kind of getting smaller and smaller. The same for us. If we don't look after our soil, if we don't look after our life with Jesus, we will find those weeds growing up. We will find the the soil getting shallow. We will find that we're not bearing the fruit that we should. So how do we do this? Do you remember the pattern that we see in Scripture of how Jesus did this? What did he do? How do we look after our soil? What does that look like? Well, first of all, we remember that Jesus, what did he do? He went up the mountains to pray, didn't he? He spent time first and foremost in prayer with his father. That is what sustained him and encouraged him. And then he came down from the mountain and he spent time with his friends in community. It wasn't just because that was a good thing to do. He did it because it was an essential for him and his, and his friends, his disciples, for, to, to grow, to have fellowship, 
to enjoy time together. And then, and only then, did they go out on mission. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Notice the disciples were together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. It's so interesting, isn't it? As they were, they were praying, they were waiting, and the Holy Spirit came to equip them to do the work that they had to do. How often do we start with the work and not with the equipping of God? Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each hears them in our own language? A whole list of languages here. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? We start in worship, in prayer, that we may be filled and equipped. So before we go on, shall we do that? Shall we actually do that right now? Shall we worship together, wait on the Lord, and then we'll see where we go in a moment. Lord, we, uh, we long for your spirit because we know that in our own strength, what happens is we end up just fumbling around in the darkness trying to come up with the right answer rather than resting in you being filled by your spirit that we may be enabled to go to the places that you've called us to be to live our lives in community Well, naturally, you give us those opportunities that are shaped with the characteristics that you have made us. That rather than stumbling for the right answer, you give us that vulnerability that depends upon you and your strengths rather than our own strengths. Teach us we pray. Amen.